It's good to see all of you this morning. I am P.D. Crowder. For those of you who I have not had the privilege of meeting, I would love for you to say hello after the service just so I could get, get to know you. If you have Bibles, I would encourage you to go ahead and grab them. If you have the journal Bibles that we've been giving out or a pew Bible in front of you or some other Bible in your possession or a device that you'd like to pull up, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We have been continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is sort of the greatest collection of Jesus' teachings on what it means to be in relationship with God. And, And last week, Pastor Rich walked us through the first of what are called the antithesis statements. The antithesis statements where Jesus says, you have heard it said, meaning it was written in the Old Testament law, but I say to you. And what he, what he showed us is that Jesus raises the bar on the Old Testament rules and says, don't just look at the law, look behind the law, that there was a heart, there was an intent, and that it's possible sometimes that we honor the law itself, but we don't honor the heart of the law, and that God desires for more than just obedience to rules. He desires the transformation of our hearts. I want you to think about if you have a favorite coach, teacher, trainer, leader, someone in your past who just you think about, that person really shaped and changed my life. If you think about what was it that made them so impactful? Was it a coach that pushed you to do things that you didn't think you were capable of? Was it a trainer that held you accountable and didn't let you get off the hook for putting in the effort? Was it a teacher that taught you things that you previously had no idea of? Now, I know many of us can name those people readily off the top of our heads, but they probably weren't coaches that said, you know, we could run these plays 10 more times, but you guys are just pretty bad. Let's just call it a day. You're going to lose anyways. Or, or maybe we think about a trainer who says, you know, we could do that last set of exercises, but you're not in very good shape, so let's just go get donuts. We might like that trainer, but it's not a good trainer for us, right? What we often find is that we need people in our lives to challenge us, to, to hold us to a standard, to not let us off the hook when it's so easy to settle to not let us just do the bare minimum in our lives. And Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount to a group of people who have just done the bare minimum when it came to their relationship with God. They had settled for a bare minimum faith. And that's not what Jesus wanted for them, and it's not what he wants for us. One day we may wake up and find that a bare minimum faith is no faith at all. And so Jesus challenges and raises the bar and holds accountable and stretches and grows us. He doesn't just want us to stay where we are. He's always pushing us and always calling us to something greater, that he sees something that's possible in our lives and in the life of the church that we may not be seeing ourselves. And so Jesus doesn't allow us to settle. He doesn't let us off the hook but desires for us to have a life that's about more than just the bare minimum. 
He wants more than just the bare minimum for us. And so we're going to jump into the next of the antithesis statements. There are three of them we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Pause right there. Jesus, can't we just go back to murder? (laughs) Right? We would mostly agree among ourselves that that this is true, that that adultery is not God's desire. We would all agree that it's not God's desire. Most of us would go, adultery is wrong. We all agree with that statement. There is no lack of clarity there. And for our purposes to define adultery as, as marital relations outside of a marital relationship. But what does Jesus say? I say to you, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So pause right there. Jesus is speaking directly to men, as you read in the text, but this is applicable to men and to women. The reason he's addressing men is, in a Jewish culture, women were often the ones that were blamed for adulterous relationships. And Jesus says, not so fast. We actually encounter a story in the book of John where Jesus comes upon a woman who's about to be stoned because she was caught in adultery. Where was the man? Because the woman was blamed, right? And Jesus is saying, not so fast. You're not off the hook here. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said lustful intent? Whoever looks at someone with lustful intent has already committed adultery in the heart. What did he mean? I'll use an Old Testament story to illustrate. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a king named David. Many of you know this story. If you don't, totally fine. There's a, there's a story of a king named David who was up on his rooftop, and he looks over to another rooftop, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop. And he looks over, and he thinks, wow. And then he thinks, I should invite her over to my place to get to know her better. Now, if you, if you take that and you take Jesus' words, what Jesus is saying is not that when he looked over and said, wow, that that's the moment that he sinned. And so what we often think in our context is what Jesus is saying is when I check someone out, that's what Jesus is saying, but that's not what he means. With lustful intent means that he looked over and saw a woman bathing on the roof and he thought, I need that. I should have that. That's for me. And that's the moment that sin entered into the conversation. So what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to people, who, and he's saying, essentially, that you may not have followed through like David, but the moment that you even thought about following through with it, the moment you thought, I should have that, is the moment that you, we realize that something is wrong on the inside. What we find is most of us are pretty good at keeping up appearances and neglecting our heart. That we may not have technically crossed the line, but our hearts sure aren't pure. And Jesus is saying even that is not acceptable before God. It's not enough just to keep the outside clean. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook for destroying our souls while keeping up appearances. Maybe Jesus is addressing you in this. Maybe there are ways that you have not technically acted out of line, but your heart sure has wanted to. Maybe there's something going on internally, something in private that no one else knows that is tearing you apart. And Jesus says it's not enough 
just to look good on the outside, when your heart is being destroyed? How does he say to deal with it? Verse 29, for if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He goes on to say, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. You can sin just as easily with your left eye or your left hand. When he uses the word hell or thrown into hell, he's speaking of a place called Gehana. Gehana was a physical dump on the outskirts of town. Everyone would have known what he was talking about. It was the place everyone dumped their trash and set it on fire so that it would burn. He's saying that you look good on the outside and you're throwing your life away. Do whatever it takes to root out the problem. Do not settle for looking good on the outside. Take drastic measures if need be. And do not do it alone, that God gives you his people to walk alongside of you. Do not let what's happening in your heart destroy you. Do not maintain appearances while throwing away your life. Because Jesus knows that what's happening in here eventually always bubbles up and overflows into our life. It always affects what's out there. For instance, he continues in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, the context for this is in in Jesus' day, the people were following the law of the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, who was giving the law, said that a man could divorce his wife, and, and women divorcing men and initiating divorce was very uncommon in their day, so it was often the man taking the initiative. A man could divorce his wife, send his wife away, if he found something unpleasing about her. So in Jesus' day, there were two different ways of interpreting this. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But Jesus says, verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, there are two schools of thought on this in Jesus' day, called rabbinical schools, meaning two rabbis had taught different interpretations of the rules, including this one. There was one rabbi, very popular, had lots of followers, who taught that when Moses said you could divorce your wife for anything that unpleases you, what Moses meant was if you find that your wife had been unfaithful to your marriage, then you could divorce her. But there was another teacher, just as many followers, just as popular, who said that when Moses said you can send your wife away for anything that displeases you, he means anything. She burns the toast kicks the dog, says something bad about you in public, roots for the Packers. <laughs> Anything. Now, which of these do you think was more popular with the men of Jesus' day? Right? That, that's exactly what Jesus is speaking into. So I need you to see, first of all, that Jesus is not just making some random, in a vacuum, blanket statement on divorce. Jesus is speaking directly into a culture 
that had devalued marriage. And this was important. He wanted them to see that even though they had followed the bare minimum of the law, that their actions had consequences. That particularly that Jewish culture was, had, had created marriage in such a way that it was intended to be a reflection of their relationship with God. But they had devalued it. And the second thing is that in their culture, women were dependent upon men in marital relationships to be provided for. And so if they took any excuse just to kick a woman out of the house then they left that woman in a very vulnerable state. And what Jesus says is, he will not let us off the hook for appeasing our conscience while destroying others. That they did the bare minimum, but they did not care how it affected others. Jesus is speaking directly to a culture that had devalued marriage and treated spouses like something to be discarded. Does it sound familiar? devalued marriage and treated spouses like something to be discarded. And he says it should not be this way in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to pause right there and just address divorce a little bit more because I don't want it to be untalked about. I don't want it to be unsaid, and I don't want to be ambiguous. If you look at Jesus' teaching here, and you look at the broader teaching on divorce and marriage in Scripture. So you can go to uh, Matthew 19, you can go to 1 Corinthians, and look at the teachings on divorce. You should walk away with the conclusion that the only biblical reason for divorce is if a covenant is broken. Is if the covenant is broken, then you have grounds for divorce. Now, in Jesus' day, the primary way that a covenant was broken was through sexual infidelity. Covenants are always broken by some form of infidelity. But many of us know and have experienced and have seen that there are other forms of infidelity. And we have seen marriages broken by infidelity through neglect, through abuse, through work, through money, through recreational habits. We have seen marriages broken and covenants broken in more ways than just sexual infidelity. I know that many of you, yourselves or your family members or your friends, carry the guilt from failed marriages. I also know that many of you fought for your marriages, and they still didn't work out. So let me offer you the words of Jesus, where he says, I did not come to condemn you, but to forgive you and to offer you healing, and to offer you reconciliation, and to offer you hope in your marriages, in all of your relationships. Jesus desires for you to have a better future. There's actually an odd word of hope in this text. It says that if you remarry, you commit adultery, and if you marry someone, you cause them to commit adultery. And you're like, how is that good news? Here's the thing. The Greek text does not allow you to interpret it as makes her an adulteress or makes him an adulterer. Don't you see? It doesn't, link, it doesn't stay with you. It's not your identity. That it, that it may cause pain and it may cause suffering down the road. What Jesus is saying is that broken marriages do not, do not go away the moment they're legal. But that pain and suffering may linger into the future, but that you are not forever carrying the mark of adulterer or adulteress. That Jesus offers a better way. He offers all of us healing, and he offers all of us hope and a future. 
that if your marriage has fallen apart, if you have fought for it and it did not turn out the way you intended, that it will not haunt you all the days of your life, that Jesus invites you going forward to live in marriage and in your relationships in ways that would reflect the kingdom of God, that that those who call Jesus Lord and Savior and King should not treat marriage the way that those who do not call Jesus Lord and Savior and King do. That our commitments are a testimony to our faith and to the one in whom we have faith. So Jesus continues in Matthew 5. Again, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So stop right there for a second. The the Old Testament allowed people to take oaths as a guarantee that they, it was like a bare minimum standard that you promised to follow through on your commitments. But I say to you, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus continues to talk about the commitments we make. And you might hear that text and think, it doesn't really have anything to say to me. I don't make oaths. I mean, you know, people in ancient days made oaths and maybe some of our elected officials take oaths. But do we really... Like, who takes oaths these days? Let me just read a little bit of the message translation if it makes, makes sense to you. When you manipulate words to get your own way. Is that clear? When you manipulate words to get your own way. Oaths in Jesus' day were a common practice of using your words to try to make, you, make yourself seem better than you actually were. And Jesus does not let us off the hook when our words and reality don't match up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and theologian, said that oaths are a sign we live in a world of lies, meaning that we use our words to make reality seem better than it actually is. And we may not be taking oaths, but we are tempted to use our words, our conversations, our pictures, our social media feeds to make our lives look better than they actually are, to be dishonest about reality. And Jesus raises the bar and says, your integrity should speak for itself, that if you are a new creation in Christ, you are a testimony to a new reality that God is creating. And instead of relying on your words to prove to everyone how great and amazing you are, why not just live a life It's about more than the bare minimum. Why not let your life speak for itself how you love and treat others? Let it speak for itself. Jesus gives three illustrations. He talks about adultery, and he talks about divorce, and he talks about oath-taking. Three illustrations of ways that the people of his day were technically following the rules of the law. They were following the bare minimum, but they were letting themselves off the hook and in the process They were destroying their souls. They were destroying their reputations. And they were destroying others. God's people had done the bare minimum of the requirements of the law, but they had not reflected, they had not reflected the heart of God. 
Where do you find yourself trying to get off the hook? Where do you find yourself doing the bare minimum? Where do you find yourself trying to keep up appearances? Where are you trying to make your life seem better than it is? The truth is when we when we let ourselves off the hook, when we just let ourselves do the bare minimum, when we don't challenge ourselves to, to grow into our faith with Jesus, we end up relying upon our own strength to fix our lives, to create for ourselves a better future. To, to, we put our destiny and our hope in our own hands and our own ability to do the bare minimum. But I don't know about you. I, I don't want a life that's about the bare minimum. I don't want a faith It's about just the bare minimum. I desire something more. Don't you want something more? And the good news is that our destiny doesn't have to be in our own hands. Jesus doesn't want you just to be better at following the rules. In fact, he raises the bar to show you that it's not about the rules. That your hope is found not in your ability to keep your marriage together. Your hope is found not in your ability to keep your thoughts pure. Your hope is found not in your ability to always tell the truth. Your hope is only found in Jesus Christ. And it is not until we start there, not until Jesus raises the bar on our lives, that we have any kind of freedom and strength to resist the temptations of this world. We must find our hope in Christ, that in his death and resurrection, he says that the the, the chains and the sin and the brokenness that always lingers and always threatens to cling and always holds us down, that it does not have power over us. And the gospel means that the mistakes and the brokenness of our life should not haunt us because Jesus offers us his freedom. And he offers us more than just a bare minimum faith. Can we learn from our failures? Can we stop doing the bare minimum? And can we cling to the grace of the one who came to free us so that we can live a new life together in Christ that is a testimony to the world that even though we've made mistakes, that God loves us and he has redeemed us and that we can live together as an offering to the world that there is a Redeemer who lives and that we do not save ourselves, but we trust in him alone. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, we just thank you so much for who you are and for your scriptures. We thank you that your word comes to us and it challenges us, that your truth hits us in uncomfortable ways. And I pray for these texts that they would linger in our hearts this morning, linger in our minds, linger in our souls, that we would not settle. We would not settle for less than what you intend for us, that we would desire transformation, that you would bring it, and that we would cling to you. As we reflect now on the grace that you've given us, help us to look to you in all things, And that as we leave here in just a few minutes, that we would know that our hope rests in Christ alone. Amen.